Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Sati Centre's Buddhist Chaplaincy Speaker Series. And today we're delighted to welcome Tom Harshman. Uh, a few words of introduction for Tom. So Tom has served in a, in a variety of spiritual care roles in hospitals, hospice, higher education, specialized ambulatory for substance use, HIV and cancer, and also congregational settings. Ordained as a Christian minister, board certified as a chaplain, and certified as an ACPE clinical educator. Tom's most recent work was as the National Spiritual Care Executive for Common Spirit Health. Currently living in Southern California, Tom provides administrative support for clinical chaplaincy training programs, while he also explores the mechanics of hope and our experience of awe. So welcome, Tom, and over to you. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be here with you all. I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to spend this time with you. As you probably know, um, there's the chat and raising of hands on uh, Zoom. And as we go through the content that I'd like to share, um, I'm, I encourage you to let your curiosities um, run free. And if you have comments or questions, uh, if you could put that into the chat or raise your hand, Jim's going to help me monitoring that so my um, I can keep my attention on uh, what I'm what I want to offer. But uh, I hope this is as interactive as possible. So please let uh, if I say something that you would like to hear a little more about, please don't hesitate to put, drop that in the chat or again raise your hand, and Jim will help um, help help me connect that way with you all. That it's always so interesting to title talks. <laughs> and I found myself reflecting even in the uh, way to title what I wanted to uh, share this morning and uh, listening to nuance and bereavement, listening to nuance and bereavement. So the, the kind of overarching theme that I hope that we can uh, explore is some different ways that, about thinking of loss, some different ways about thinking of the way that we respond as humans to loss, and, um, and what really is the goal of effective listening, and especially as a professional caregiver. So um, um, as we go through this uh, conversation, I want to remember those two basic tasks of training for a professional caregiver, which is uh, skills for service and self-awareness as a server. So the two muscles that one might say that a, a caregiver brings to the caregiving situation is some specific skills. How do I most effectively listen? How do I most effectively respond? How do I most effectively um, understand and help the care receiver understand their experience in the moment. And at the same time, the second muscle is, um, how do I know who I am in this moment? How do I know the attitudes, values, and assumptions that I bring to this moment? How do I know how who I am is impacting and changing this moment uh, in, in care with the care receiver? In any given spiritual care connection, 
one of those two muscles is stronger and one of those two muscles is weaker. And we may have more self-awareness in that moment and less ideas of what to do, <laughs> or we may have plenty of ideas of what to do in that moment, but not so much awareness of how I am you know, being impacted or what I am bringing to that caregiving moment. My hope is as we develop in our uh, capacity to give, provide care, is that we're always building those two muscles, that we see those as a dynamic growth development and that we're paying attention to both kind of homing my skill as a caregiver, but at the same time, expanding my awareness as the giver of care in those moments. So I'm homing my skill and expanding my awareness. And today to explore that, I wanna talk about grief. It's a common experience for us as human beings. It's also a frequently moments that we are called upon as professional caregivers to engage with persons or families as they experience grief and bereavement, loss and bereavement. That's what we're going to play with a little bit this morning. I want to have the broadest understanding of loss that I can possibly describe. So I'm going to offer five categories of loss that I think are part of our experience as human beings. I do not think this is exhaustive, but these are five kind of broad categories of loss. The first category of loss is relational loss, relational loss. So think in your own mind of the kinds of relationships we can have that we can lose and how we can lose a relationship. So we can certainly lose relationships with persons through death or divorce or estrangement or distance. We can lose relationship with pets. We can lose a relationship with friends, with people close to us, with relatives, with neighbors. We can have relational losses, losses of a relationship. The second category of loss is the loss of roles. Think of the roles that you embody in your life. You probably have familial roles, child, parent, spouse, grandparent. You may have professional roles, whatever your job title is or whatever your job tasks entail. There's some of those roles in your life. What's your role in the larger spiritual community? What's your role in the larger community community around us? What's the role that you play in your neighborhood or your city, your town? We can lose those roles and we can lose those roles in the same variety of ways by death, by losing a job, by growing out of a job and deciding that there's a different path. Each time we change a role, aging changes a role. We if we lose, if our children, um, when our children move away, we lose a, one type of a role of parenting and take on perhaps a different type of a role of parenting. So those roles in our life change and evolve in the same way that the relationships in our life change and evolve over time. And as they change, even when it's a change for a better, uh, there's loss in that. So the first type of loss is 
relational. The second category of loss is role. The third category of loss is functional. This is when we lose functional capacities. So think of all the things you functionally do in your life and the ways that pieces of that function can be lost. So as we age, we perhaps lose the function of hearing or seeing as sharply as we used to. We may lose the function of, uh, through accident, of our musculature, or we may have amputations or not be able to move or walk in the same way. We may lose some functional ability as our mind changes. We may lose functional capacities as we live in different environments. So what are the functions that you do in the world? And how are the various ways those functions can be lost? We have relational role, functional loss. The fourth category is material loss. What are the stuff in our lives? What are the things that we can lose? We can lose wealth. We can lose car keys. We can lose things through a fire in our home or through theft or through misplacement. Or um, we can love a piece of clothing so much that it falls apart and no longer can be worn. So we have material things in our world that, um, that have various meanings to us and, and we can lose those things. When, um, when the stock market goes up or down for people who are relying on the stock market for some kind of wealth, there's loss for um, uh, when inflation occurs. There's loss of, of material purchasing power. So there's many ways for loss to um, material loss to, to emerge. And the fifth type of loss is a little tricky. <laughs> I think it's particularly tricky for us as we try to think about our attachments to this. But um, the fifth area of loss is image loss, image loss. And image loss is when I have a picture of myself that, and not just a visual picture, but a picture of myself of how my life is going to unfold. My life unfolds differently than I imagined it to be. And sometimes I'm happy about that. And sometimes I'm sad about that. But any gap between my, the image of my life and the reality of my life is an image loss. So I look in the mirror and I see a guy that has a gray beard and I think, well, who's that person? That's not the person I'm familiar with. Or I can think, oh, I thought I would have children or I thought I would be doing this in my life. I thought that I would be more optimistic or I thought I'd be more adventurous. The gap between these images and, um, and how our life actually is, is yet another loss. So here are those five categories of loss. Again, they're relational losses, role losses, functional losses, material losses, and image losses. I'm going to pause for a minute. Anything that strikes you uh, anything you're curious about, just in those categories. We'll play with it for a while. Uh, anything about those categories? What's missing? What category would you add to that?
list. How about where does um, um, loss of um, faith or loss of um, um, sense of um, meaning fit into that? I would put that in the image loss. Um, that that and and, and uh, there's a note in the chat about that. the image loss is my favorite catch-all category because the loss of faith suggests that I had this I had something that was part of my hoping mechanism, and that got uh, lost in some way. And sometimes that's good, and some and good in the sense of it makes me happy, and sometimes it's. Uh, challenging and that makes me feel rudderless or that I'm not I, I, I'm not um, grounded in the same way that I imagined I would be or hoped I would be. So I do put that in that kind of image loss. Uh, loss of hope is a specific kind of loss of faith, not so much religious faith, but um, worldview faith. And um, technically, I think of that as a um, loss of a future story. So what was the the image of myself, that story of myself that I, you know, am too attached to, that I became attached mm -hmm. to the way that my life would unfold, and it didn't unfold that way, and that is discouraging it. And interestingly, with loss of faith or loss of meaning, the kind of bereavement styles that we'll talk about in a little bit are very useful because the imagery of reconstructing meaning and reconstructing faith or hope are all um, well served by a more classic bereavement process. Thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, that part in, in a little bit. Other thoughts? Could you repeat what the second category of loss is? Role, role. Oh. So a relational role, functional, material, and image. So role losses are those roles we pay, like, like I'm a dad, I'm a brother, I'm a employed person, I'm a, um, a, a spiritual follower, I like watching rugby, I mean, so I'm a sports guy. You know, so whatever those roles are, um, uh, we can lose those roles. Some are assigned <laughs> that we don't we don't have choice in them, and some we choose. The assigned one, letting go of it, sometimes is kind of joyous, right? So, loss of religious community again. I think the losses of religious community kind of is a great little. Um, uh, entree into a, 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 what I want to talk about, a systemic loss. So I, I, there, it's possible to have a loss and loss of community or religious community from the, um, not just the way Carmen was talking about um, these uh, painful ways, but also uh, non-painful ways. If we lose a, a religious community because we choose to be out of that for different reasons, it can be a systemic loss. So a systemic loss is a single loss that shows up in more than one category. A single loss that could show up in one, that has impacts in more than one category. So 
let's take loss of religion or religious community. So I lose some relational. There's relational loss in that, right? The people that I shared time with in that religious community is a relational loss. There may be a role loss. I was a whatever ist. I was a member of that. I had a role in that community as a leader or a congregant or a, a learner. There may have been functional things I did with that community. So I'm no longer doing that. I may have served in a particular way. There may have been material, some material things that were meaningful to me. So uh, maybe there were rituals, you know, the, uh, maybe water or oil touching my body in a certain way was a physical thing that no longer exists if I'm out of that community. And certainly image. Um, I had this picture that I would be connected with that community for a while. So a single loss, a decision or being forced out of a certain religious community has impacts in in multiple categories. Think of uh, job loss, for instance. That's another systemic loss. If I lose my job, I'm laid off from my job or I retire from my job or I um, leave my job. I leave the people. There's relational loss. I leave the title. There's role loss. I leave the things I was doing. There's functional loss. There's material loss potentially if I'm if I lose my income, and now I'm no longer an employed person or at least an employed person at that location. So those systemic losses, loss of a significant um, uh, uh, other, a spouse or a child, they have these kind of ripple effect in in these multiple categories of loss. And, and that's important in terms of caregiving because we hear a particular loss and we may pay attention to one of the areas that that loss is painful and not pay attention to one of those areas that for that person, the loss is painful. So let's go to a job loss. When I encounter someone that has had a job loss, there may be one piece of that that I think, oh, that's too bad for that. that. Maybe I'm worried about the income. Is it a material loss that's most important? And maybe for that person, that is the thing that's most important, but maybe an image loss is more. Or maybe the relational losses are more. So how can I, as the caregiver, pay attention in a systemic loss to the part that for that person in that moment is the most significant? Let me follow. Uh, I see a hand. Randall? You're on mute. You're on mute. Would you say there, 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 there may be commonalities uh, in all of these uh, forms of loss that in a way integrate them emotionally or, or physically also? There is, in my mind, and that relates to when we talk about bereavement, like the process of of bereaving. In each of these losses, we lose something that's essential to our worldview. In a systemic loss, we use often many things that are essential to our worldview, but each of the things in the categories that we can lose are essential to the way that we see the world and ourselves in the world. So when loss happens, what happens is we lose our world in the kind of most dramatic way, 
either pieces of our world or a whole lot of our world at one time. And grieving, bereavement, is the process of acknowledging that loss and reconstructing our worldview. So we're what we're doing when we're doing the work of grief is we're letting go of a world that no longer exists and building the new world in which we will inhabit, that we will have inhabit. Hmm. So one of the ways of t- thinking about grief is that it's deconstruction and construction. <laughs> Loss deconstructs our world. Grief acknowledges that and helps us reconstruct our world that fits our new reality. So that's that's the common thread in loss in my mind is it somehow whatever this was that I lost had meaning to me in my world. With it gone, I need to I need to now adapt myself to the new world in which I live. And that's what grief, the grieving process, assists us in doing. Let me step back to the um, the two muscles of self, self-awareness and skills for ministry. For a moment in silence, just think about those five categories of loss, relational, role, functional, material, and image losses. And think in your family or culture of origin, the family or culture in which you grew up, which of those losses were considered more significant than others? So in your family or culture of origin, which of those losses were kind of thought of, well, that's a big loss. And which of those losses were thought of as, well, I get that you're disappointed, but it's not, I mean, it's not that big of a thing, right? So just for a moment, think about your own family or culture of origin, and then I'm going to play with that for a bit. Relational, role, functional, material, image. What's at the top? What's at the bottom? So in the family I grew up in, relational losses were primary. Relational losses were real losses. You grieved them. You grieved them openly. That was how we did it. Material losses, oh, you shouldn't really be that attached to that kind of stuff. That's that's not really that important. So this is the impact of the what we were taught and what we adapted from the culture or family around us is that when I encounter someone that has loss, in particular a, a systemic loss, my natural tendency is to listen for the relational part of it. What's the relational loss here? Because certainly that's the most important. <laughs> I don't tend to listen for the material. If it's a thing and someone's lost a thing, they usually have to, in my mind, they usually have to attach that thing to a person or to a relationship. Once it's attached to a relationship, then I think of it, oh, that's a real loss. Yeah, that's something that my grandmother gave me. And that misses hearing what the care receiver may actually be struggling with the most. So to go back to Randall's question about that through line, 
Well, the through line is what upsets their world most. What what is the most difficult thing to adapt to? And that may be the relationship, like my family taught me. It may be material, like someone else's culture or family taught me. So as we go into the caregiving role with individuals around us that have these various kinds of losses, awareness of what we hear most clearly and what we tend to not hear as loudly is really helpful in being able to note for ourselves so I can pay attention to clearly what the care receiver is telling me is the hardest part about it. And I can prompt that by asking, you've had this significant loss. What's what's most difficult about it for you? What's, what's most difficult about it for you? And then the trick is to believe them, right? When they tell me what is the most difficult, I, I need to believe them. But in, in being able to engage what they start by saying, this is what's most difficult for me, I either am going to be able to help them focus on what it is that's hardest, or by believing them, if, if that isn't the hardest thing, they'll get there in their own time. Either way, I'm finding a way to set my assumptions in the background by being aware of them, set them aside in the background so I can listen most effectively. So I'm going to pause. This is that, this is our self-awareness with skills. The self-awareness of what are those are that priorities that I have unconsciously adapted to how that makes a difference in how I provide um, caregiving support. What kind of thoughts or questions about? So one last thing about the types of losses thing. And then we're going to get to the work of grief. (laughs) One other thing, uh, and this emerged in the pandemic. So during the pandemic, um, my role in the health system I was with was to design resources for caregiver support. And um, I worked with a nurse scientist who was a specialist in um, traumatic stress and um, and we talked about moral distress, traumatic stress, and um, loss. And it became clear to us that, yes, systemic loss was occurring in our caregivers, but there was something also that was happening. And that, um, and that we started languaging it as cumulative loss, cumulative loss. So the image that, um, that we came up with was kind of goofy. It was of a sack like a burlap sack that we have on our backs, that everybody has this burlap sack. And in the bottom of the burlap sack is um, a little tiny hole the size of a stone, size of a small stone cut in the bottom. So there's a hole in the bottom of the sack. And then every time we have a loss in our life, it's like taking a stone and dropping it in the burlap sack on our back. Any one of these losses, if we ever, any one of those losses, it's like, just it's a little stone that goes in our in our grief sack. If um, if a particular loss is fairly significant, either it's a big single category loss or it's a systemic loss. Maybe it's a handful of stones that tosses in our back backpack. 
the good news is that naturally the stones dribble out of that hole in the bottom. But if we're tossing stones in the sack faster than they're dribbling out the bottom, they can accumulate, right? And they can become heavier and heavier and heavier. And during the pandemic, that's what we started seeing happen. It was certainly a systemic loss. We lost relationships with people we were used to seeing. Some people lost roles. There was definitely loss in functionality. We couldn't be in community. We couldn't feel comfortable in a grocery store. There was material loss and the image of being free and the image that I couldn't get, especially early on in the pandemic, that something couldn't, I couldn't catch something that I'd be dead in two weeks with. And for caregivers, that the immediacy of all those realities was just accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. And we know that the dribbling was happening, that the people were grieving, we were supporting them in grieving, but the accumulation was so great. So we kind of started to build resources around three categories. And one was, um, you can take the sack off your back and set it down for me. You can have a respite. My sack's heavy. I know it's heavy. I'm going to take it off and set it down for a moment, knowing that I'll go back to it. But in this time that I meditate, in this time that I walk outside in nature, in this time that I talk to a friend, I'm setting down my grief set consciously. Or I'm going to actively try to unload it. <laughs> so I'm going to take sacks out or stones out of the top of the sack by having a conversation, by writing, by journaling, by doing art, by doing something directed toward relieving the losses and grieving those losses that I've had. And then the third category of resources that we try to provide is how to trust that even if I'm not conscious of it, the stones are dribbling, dribbling out of my sack, that that always is happening, that as I live every moment, grief is healing. I'm, it's always healing. And so those were kind of the ways that we tried to address cumulative loss, but that was kind of a, a new a nuance on systemic loss that um, we hadn't really, or I hadn't really put together in my brain. So there's these five categories of loss or more. There's systemic losses that hit all five that are that impacted some or all of those five categories. And we ha can have cumulative loss where the, the natural pace of our grieving isn't keeping up with the losses we're incurring. We all have a natural pace of grieving. And when the losses that we're incurring happen faster than our natural pace of grieving, they can accumulate. And therefore, it just takes more time. I'll pause just for a second, about a few seconds, about questions or thoughts about the categories, systemic or cumulative loss. Yeah, my question is related to like long term trauma, right? So as like a person who's had like extensive trauma in different areas and kind of understand it now and as a caregiver now, understanding that like those categories I've heard before in different ways or a long time ago in grief, <clears throat> that my experience through those experiences is not like other people, like it's a loss of commonality that other people can experience it in that way. 
So do you have any research around that of like, as a person who understands that, but it doesn't fit in, like I can't explain it quite, right? Like, because it's a, such a different experience than most other people. Then in some ways, it's an ongoing loss, right? Because that's right. an ongoing awareness of that that different. As a caregiver, it's a resource. Um, the tricky thing is not using it, and this is true for every kind of kind of interior resource we have, but particularly with trauma, it's not the content, but the um, the consciousness of new of the feelings that I can I can experience I can use as a resource in my caregiving. So it's not the content of the trauma, but the knowledge of the process of trauma, the knowledge of healing and trauma, the knowledge of the feelings associated, that kind of distinction as you were talking about. All that is a resource for you or others as a caregiver, as, and, but not the content so much, the nature of the trauma. And that's true for other kinds of, uh, all of us have things in our history that inform the way we engage someone else. And we, the content is usually not relevant. Mm, and yeah. it's, 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 it's much more of that kind of capacity. But you're also talking, Heidi, about an ongoing loss. Because there's, there's moments, it sounds like you've become familiar with them and know to expect them, of that sense of difference. But that also is um, a, a bit of a loss there's also joy in it. Um, I was thinking about loss of control, which uh, is seems so predominant. <laughs> uh, so just briefly, would, would you put that in image? Uh, uh, yes, deluge? I would because I put, every, I put all of those nuanced ones in image, but the loss of control. So when we just talking about um, cumulative loss from the pandemic, that was the biggest, that, without a doubt. Yeah. That was the most significant loss that people would talk about. And I do think of its its image and the way I make that calisthenics is um, I have this image. It's an illusion, but I have this image that I can control things that I can, that I should be able to control things by being effective in some ways. But it's absolutely, you know, to me it, and this is a little bit of a bias around image. I think so many of those um, things that we lose that make our world different challenges our sense of control because we kind of have the illusion that by acting in certain ways, we wouldn't have to have loss in our life. And that's obviously not true. It's it, During the pandemic in particular, the loss of control of our health was terrifying early on for folks. And in the healthcare world, that was particularly difficult because it was caregivers who were not used to treating conditions that they themselves could catch that day. Yeah. That's a very different, consistently at least. Thank you. Thanks. Sure. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit so we can talk a bit about bereavement. And that's the response to loss. I mean, I kind of already gave a hint that um, the really the work of bereavement or of grief is um, you know the loss deconstructs the world we live in, takes to some degree things out of that world that we were used to, and so what we do is we reconstruct that world with us in it. But we go through a process, and I'm going to go through um, these styles. I always am apologetic in some ways, which is so unfair to a pioneer in our field. 
But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, 50 years plus years ago, a Swiss uh, uh, psychiatrist, was studying anticipatory loss. I think it's I think it's relevant that it was anticipatory loss. And she kind of, as she puts it, outlined or started the conversation. If you read the first couple pages of her book on death and dying, she's very clear that she doesn't think she has this down. <laughs> and as she herself got sick decades later, she reconfirmed she didn't think she had it down, but she wanted to start a conversation about what the process of bereavement is or what grief looks like. So you're probably familiar with what she at that time called five stages of grief. Um, it's pretty clear that they're not stages in the sense of you don't go from one to the other. And it's also pretty clear you don't have to experience all five of these. It's also pretty clear that they don't go in a particular order. It's also pretty clear that they don't, once you have one, it, um, the stages suggest you'll never go back to it. And that's not clear. So there's lots of things about the way she originally talked about bereavement that don't apply. But I still think the five styles do apply, or at least are a useful handle for us to begin to think about um, the kinds of experiences people have as they reconstruct their world. And as we do that, so I'm going to talk about these five. You've heard them, um, but don't think it's a, a like the high hurdles. We're not running a race to get to the end. Um, these are more like waves in the ocean. These five styles happen. They happen in their own time. I may not have all five at any given loss. I tend to grieve similarly. Like I have a thumbprint of my own grief. So the styles tend to be, oh, I have a lot of this and little of this or whatever. So um, with all those caveats, Dr. Kubler-Ross still gets um, props for coming up with the beginning of a conversation. I will describe them in the order that I, that I think she talked about, but I'll use uh, uh, adaptive language. So again, what's happening is I'm letting go of the world that no longer exists. I'm reconstructing the world that I now live. Often, um, she, uh, Dr. Kubas talked about uh, the first stage, and she called it a stage. But that first style that I want to talk about is, um, she called it denial. I think of it as shock or numbness. Denial suggests that we have some volition. <laughs> I don't think we have volition. What happens in this style of grieving is the loss is just incomprehensible. I can't comprehend it. I, I know something has happened, maybe, or I just can't comprehend it. That's an initial reaction that feels really like numbness. At a different point in the loss, it feels like forgetfulness. So I, I have a loss of a spouse, and I end up setting the table for two. Well, I know I've lost my spouse, but I kind of forgot it in that moment. Or I think I wake up and think, oh, I want to tell my dad this. And then I remember that my dad is so it's just this kind of numbness, this shock maybe, but I just can't, I just don't comprehend. The second uh, style that, to talk about is anger. This is when I have awareness of the loss and I don't like it. I'm mad that, I don't, that I've had this loss. I'm mad that my world is no longer what it was. 
And that anger at this this style is um, directed outwards. If I can, um, if I direct it outwards, it's sometimes on a disease that caused a loss or a boss that caused a loss or a, um, the doctor that caused a loss, the chaplain that isn't able to help me deal with this loss, the anger's going outward. Um, if people have particular deistic faiths, the anger sometimes goes toward the de- deity. Um, why didn't God save this person? Um, it can go to the person who died. That's difficult to be mad at someone who didn't want to die. Suicide complicates this style of gr- this this point of grief. How can I be angry at someone who's was suffering so much? So that second style is this anger that's going outward. I know I've had the loss, and I'm mad about it. The third style is another. I know I've had this loss, but this time I'm sad about it. I'm the third style that she talked about was depression. We understand depression very differently than uh, in the 1960s, but um, uh, this is more sadness. I realize I I have had this change or loss in my life, and I'm just sad. I, I just don't really imagine that my life is ever going to have the kind of joy or ease or satisfaction or meaning that it had when I uh, had this person or this thing or this role or this ability. So shock, anger, sadness. The fourth style that she talked about, and this is where the fact that she was doing research on anticipatory treat, I've got this diagnosis, what do I anticipate happening? That's what she was originally studying. So the fourth style is bargaining. And in anticipation, it's a bargain, you know, you make with a deity, perhaps, or with yourself. If I go to church every Sunday, please um, save this person or save me from this. If I, you know, eat all the right foods, please make this be a deal. In in grief, I I think of this bargaining style more in terms of I'm going to bargain myself out of the emotions, I'm going to bargain myself out of these painful emotions. So sometimes I try to make meaning out of the loss so that I don't have to feel so pain, so much pain. That's where we hear some really um, inept caregiving, where a caregiver says, well, maybe there was a plan for this. Maybe this person's in a better place. Whether there is or isn't a plan, whether a person is or isn't in a better place, is that bargain is designed to to, uh, mute or stop an emotion that is uncomfortable in that moment. And so that bargaining style, we do it to ourselves. (laughs) I'm going to try to make meaning out of this so it doesn't hurt so darn bad. And the the kind of caregiving response to that that I think is I've seen to be the most effective is the little word and the little word and so that person isn't suffering any longer you you hold that as dear to you and you're sad or and you're frightened and you're angry so that we can instead of trying to make a bargain to um, 
block the emotion, we can use that bargaining style as a way to marry insight that's comforting with uh, feelings that are uncomfortable. But those we can co- we can <laughs> we can multitask. That those kind of philosophies or thoughts that or realities also um, can they can be held at the same time that we can hold um, that we can have emotion. And then finally, um, uh, the style that that she described, she called it acceptance, acceptance of the loss. I think of it more as serenity and openness to possibilities. So um, I'm at this this style. It's a moment where I accept that I've had this significant loss in my life. And at the same time, I have these glimmers that I'm going to be okay. That there are some there's there's newness and possibility in the world for me. That this new world that I'm re, that I'm reconstructing is actually satisfying for me, has meaning for me, is going to be a place where I can see myself locating myself. So in this uh, that that what she saw as the final stage, it's not a final thing because that comes and goes with grief. And since we're kind of always grieving, there's always kind of a dialectic around that. But that in that in that style, there's a sense of peace or serenity or joy in what now my world can be. So um, I'm going to pause for a second. Thoughts on those are probably familiar categories. Remember, styles, not stages, not in order, not all five. There's all kinds of variety in how people experience it, but that's some large categories of types of experiences folks have. Thoughts or questions? Okay, same exercise. Oh, yeah. Hi, Tom, just, just one, one thing. You mentioned a few times this idea that we're, we're constantly grieving, um, which is kind of a, a new idea for me. I think I've always thought of it as, as episodic or in reaction to a loss. But twice now you kind of mentioned this idea that grief is this ongoing process that's always with us. Am I, am I hearing that right? You're hearing that right. And uh, many people in my life have said that's because you're a chaplain, Tom. That's the lens through which you see the world. <laughs> and there may be truth to that. So with that caveat, yeah, every day that we live is one less day that we'll have. So there is... At a, and the reason I find some comfort in the thought about that is that it, it strengthens my sense of, oh, I do grief all the time, that there are these episodic losses that I feel more profoundly, that unsettle my worldview more profoundly, and that I think of as oh, that moment is a moment of loss and that moment is a moment of loss. At the same time, the truth in my my reality is that every moment that happens is uh, one less moment. It's it's gone. Um, it's It was ethereal to start with. <laughs> and, um, and that I'm always adapting. My, I'm always adapting and con- const- reconstructing my world at some subtle level. And again, this is the most important point for that, Jim, is it gives me confidence that grief is 
this integral part of living that I I need not fight, I cannot avoid, and that I have a great deal of experience with. And so when the big things come, I can have more trust in that process for those big things. And then I see I see a hand. Yeah. Hi there. Thank you. Um, earlier when you were talking about or teaching us about the um, categories of loss and you asked us to uh, consider our the kind of go-to kind of loss in our family, <laughs> the, the <laughs> family version. It occurred to me as you were speaking about the phases or aspects of styles of grieving that in my experience, as I just momentarily reflect on it, my family also had a kind of style of of grief and that it was anger mm-hmm. and yeah. or that or that I shouldn't say it was anger. It's more that it was the shock and fear, mm-hmm. fear of mm-hmm. the loss that happened that sometimes manifested in it manifested in fear. So yeah. my question is. And and I have been aware of this, not in so many words, and have been kind of practicing understanding my go-to place isn't anger, but understanding this basically the styles of grief in me and kind of paying attention to them. But so my question is, have you noticed also that there are I imagine I, I know that I feel at times, each of those styles of grief. And I'm even kind of consciously trying to access them to to experience emotion more deeply. Um, So there's really, I guess my question is, what have you noticed about styles of grief? And um, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just sort of making a comment question. I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) In two minutes, I would have asked you all that question because you're exactly right the families we grew up in and the culture we grew up in, in addition to teaching us unconsciously, of course, what were grievable moments, they taught us how do people grieve, how people grieve. So you you beat me to the punch there. That is exactly true. And that's the kind of self-awareness of, oh, what are the styles that I'm familiar with? What are the styles that frighten me? What are the styles that I reject? What are the, you know, what are the, those experiences that I was taught was the right and wrong way? There may be sometimes kind of binary gender preferences in cultures about what styles are okay to express. So absolutely, that's been my experience, that we have this a parallel kind of historic unconscious um, education from our family and cultures of origin, which of these styles are more and less comfortable. You see it in clinical settings where a caregiver, a nurse, for instance, will say, please, chaplain, go in and work with their fa- that family over there. They're grieving. They're too, and whatever he or she says is gives you a clue as to what they're uncomfortable. They're too loud. They're too stoic. They're too numb whatever it is, and it just reveals our biases. Nobody's bad that we have those biases. As caregivers, the key is being aware because whatever I was taught, I'm going to be most comfortable with, or like you said, I'm going to be most rejecting of. Whatever it is that I was taught 
uh, where th is the right way to do it is either what I'm comfortable with or what I'm uncomfortable with. And what I want to be able to do as a caregiver is be as present as possible to however that person is grieving in that moment. And you kind of lifted, you lifted up several things, so I'm grateful to you. Because another thing is, even if we're taught one style, we have access to all of them. We have access to all of them. And if we feel like we have less access than we want to be able to be most available to the people to whom we're offering care, well, that's when we do actively try to see, well, what makes it different, difficult for me to be in the uncertainty of loss? Or what makes it difficult to me for me to be in the anger of loss? Or what makes it difficult when I'm experiencing someone in the bargaining style of loss? Because with that knowledge, I can find ways to expand my own capacity to be a container for what the care receiver is off offering me. It's also um, interesting with loss. So when I was young, my mother had Hodgkin's disease back in the 60s and 70s, and she died of it when I was 14. So one of the things, and in our family, she was a big proponent of Kubler-Ross. We were very, very open about our experiences with loss, but very controlled in that way. Our, the bias in my family was you do them all. You do them all. You don't necessarily do them all honestly <laughs> or openly, but you do them all. And so one of the things that I had to work on a lot in my early years as chaplaincy is assuming that it was best for people to do them all. And, and how I, I had to find a way not to be um, attached to the idea of manipulating people into an expression of grief that I assessed they weren't doing by. And the way that you, you know, coming to awareness of where that came from and finding a way to put that urgency aside is the kind of the work of professional chaplaincy. How does my history, both helpfully, I was very attentive to people's grief, but harmfully, I wanted them to do it all, my care with people. And the more that I can see those um Attitudes, values, and assumptions of mine, the more I can set them in the background and be a clearer vessel, in a sense, or someone who's most capable of helping the patient, this is the goal kind of, of effective listening, helping the care receiver most clearly and most with the most equanimity focus on their present experience helping the care receiver with the greatest amount of equanimity and um, focus on their present experience, whatever that is. And my job as a caregiver is to do everything I can do to keep myself out of that process, the parts of myself that um, would interrupt their focus. I can use all those parts of myself to help in that process as well. But I need to have awareness of where that's difficult. So again, my kind of effective listening is how do I help the person receiving care focus with the greatest amount of equanimity 
on whatever their presence experience is. I'm conscious of our time. I think we just have a couple more minutes. So um, any thoughts or questions? This is a lot of content, I know. So I was recently trying to, I mean, I was doing exactly what you're telling us not to do. And but I caught myself, realized and slapped my wrist. But still, I was in a situation where someone was doing that, um, telling me about her brother who was not grieving appropriately and how could she force him to do it properly. But that's, but, but that's how do I be with her grieving in that? You know what I mean? I, I know I did it wrong, but how would be better? Well, if I had a dollar for every time, I, I, I stop slapping, start, start, start gently rubbing your wrist. So, you know, one of the ways to think about it is um, each person's going to experience grief in their own way. If they describe discomfort with their own grieving process, that's when I think it's fair to engage them. So often someone will say, I'm not moving through my loss in the way that I expected to. And say, well, what was your expectation? And they said, I'm just mad all the time. I'm mad, mad, mad um, all the time. I said, okay, you're mad. So we can explore that. But if they still are just uncomfortable with that madness, my curiosity might be, well, what about your sadness? Has your sadness emerged? So the sadness and anger styles often are the ones that we get the most cultural or familial messages about. You can be sad. You can't be mad. You can be mad. You can't be sad. So um, if the person themselves expresses discomfort with how their process is happening, that's fair for me to explore. If someone else or me is trying to help tell them they should be doing it differently, that's where I'm projecting my own discomfort onto them. But I think it's fair. People are uncomfortable with their process. So let's go into inquiry. Let's let our curiosity be this lovely resource for helping them dive deeper into what what they think is amiss with how they're how they're grieving. So it, the task is to kind of always pull it back to what well what what are you discovering in your own grief? And that that kind of use our curiosity to invite more conversation. Okay, well we're now at the uh, top of the hour. And um, Tom, there's just one one last quick question. Uh, someone was yeah. asking. The, the model of the five losses that you shared, so not, not the styles of grieving, but the five losses, is that a, an existing model or paradigm that someone could read more about? Um, you know, if it is, I'm not aware of it. It's kind of, uh, this is oral history. I think there's probably ways that people have talked about categories of loss, but I learned it from my mentor who learned it from some other mentor. So I'm not aware of where there's written work. Um, but uh, that that's how I learned it. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I feel like this conversation could go on and on. This is so rich, Tom, and, and thank you so much. Um,